today is Psalm 126. Uh, if you're uh, if you weren't here last week, we're we're doing a little series. It's it's great to do a series from the Psalms because there doesn't really have to be any kind of like continuity. You can just bounce around and call it a series. So that's what we're doing. Uh, Psalm 126. Hear the word of God. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. We were, um, a few of us were praying about, um, we're praying this morning for the service, and we were talking about the Psalms a little bit, and how just one of the remarkable things about the Psalms is that they, they so richly give expression to the diversity of our emotional landscape. Like, if it can be felt by a human being, chances are you're going to find it somewhere in the Psalms. And perhaps nowhere is the broadness of our emotional spectrum more on display than right here in this Psalm. Because it, it begins in the first three verses with a note of gladness and joy, like there's laughter and rejoicing, but then in verse four there's a shift to a really minor key, and the psalm becomes a psalm of lament, and a psalm of petition, and a psalm kind of crying out for help. Like there is, there's weeping, and there's tears. And I know that's something we can all relate with. Uh, I have been thinking a lot this week about Sean Jackson, and, and especially now about Sean Jackson's mother, Sean graduated from high school, and on Tuesday he walked across the stage of the Altria Theater and he received his diploma, and you think, ah, oh, that's, that's something to celebrate, it's something to, um, that would fill our mouths with laughter and our hearts with joy, um, just the sheer exuberance of a son who is beloved um, accomplishing something so great. Um, And then, just like in our city, uh, not far from where we live, he walks out, and within minutes, he's killed. Um, and, and not just him, but his stepdad, and, and you've read the story, there were others who were hurt, but I just, I keep thinking about his mom. And um, how, how is her restoration? How could there be? You know, that's, that's what I think every parent dreads, maybe more than anything, is that a child would be taken from us. Like, we, we want to die before our kids. Um, So I've, I've been thinking about this mom 
and I've been thinking about her tears and um, and I know that thoughts and prayers get a bad rap these days, especially in social media. Uh, but I don't know what to do right now other than just um, pray and weep and, um, and, and trust that when, the song, when, when Psalm 56 says that, uh, that the God who created the heavens and the earth sees every tear and actually makes them his own, like gathers them up in his bottle, that that's true. That this isn't a God who uh, turns his face away, but um, he's with her, he's for her. Um, that every tear somehow uh, just is meaningful. So I'm a mess today, <laughs> and, um, and you'll have to bear with me. Sometimes I cry, and sometimes you cry. And, uh, and that's one of the things that this psalm, I think, just gives us permission to do. Because it shows us that like the life of faith, the life um, of following Jesus, it, it just includes weeping. It includes sorrow and sadness. And, and so let's let's try to look at this if I can um, if I can lead us through this a little bit. The first three verses give us some context. The the psalm is recalling a particular act of God's deliverance, and so there's some kind of restoration that has happened, and the nations have heard about it. Like in some way, God has shown His power uh, in the sight of the nations, and He's He's worked a mighty act of restoration for his people, and we don't know exactly what's in view here. I mean, it's possible that the historical setting was the return from Babylon to Zion, that God's people have been restored to the land, and that would certainly fit, like God's people returning home after a long time of exile. Maybe that's the historical setting, but we, we really don't know for sure, and we can't know for sure, and that's okay. Uh, the psalm can speak to a wide range of situations and circumstances, and, and so, like, maybe you can recall times in your life when God has shown up in a really powerful way, and he has worked deliverance and restoration and healing for you, and, and you remember seasons of your life um, when your mouth was filled with laughter and your heart full of joy and gladness because of what God has done for you. And, and maybe that describes you right now, like maybe you walked in this morning with a heart full of laughter and joy and gladness, and, and that's just a true part of the Christian experience and the life of faith, but it doesn't give us a complete picture. Look at the psalm, as great as the restoration was that God's people had experienced in the first three verses, whatever that is, it wasn't the whole story, now it looks like they're in trouble again. And... We can tell that because if you pay attention, you can see that there's a change from the past tense to the present tense. There's a shift between verses 3 and 4 uh, from remembering to requesting. And so in, in verse 1, uh, God has brought restoration, but now in verse 4, we're asking for restoration. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. And then that note of kind of longing, 
and sorrow and, and sadness and weeping, it, it continues through to the end. Um, verse 1, God has restored us and we're filled with joy. Verse 4, restore us, O Lord. And that's just that tension. We've been restored and we need restoration. There's joy and there's deep sadness and longing. Uh, that's just a really realistic picture of the Christian life. Uh, there's joy, but it's not all joy. There's restoration, but there's restoration still needed. And so there is laughter, and there's also tears. So the life of faith includes weeping, which sounds so obvious, right? Like joy and sadness. Okay, uh, why am I drawing attention to this? Because I'm not sure that we really believe it, that the life of, of the faith, that life with Jesus uh, is supposed to include weeping. That it's supposed to include sadness. That, um, that when we're on this road with Jesus, there will be like profoundly sad things. And, and that the most appropriate response is, is sorrow and tears. Um, I think what we often assume in subtle ways is that to the extent that we're not feeling the, the gladness and the laughter and the joy, to that extent, well, we must not be doing something right. Because life with Jesus is supposed to address that and change that and fix that and make us people who are um, glad all the time in any and every situation. Like if we really, really believe the gospel and if we really apply it to our lives in the right ways, then sorrow and tears, <coughs> those should just fade away. And, and that assumption is just completely alien to the world of the Psalms. The psalmist has experienced the salvation and restoration and deliverance of God, but he's still weeping, he's still sorrowful, he still cries. And, and you see, um, the tears are not a denial of God's salvation. You see that? They're not a denial of God's salvation. In fact, we, we might be able to say that the tears are actually the result of God's salvation, which leads to a second point. Um, the life of faith includes weeping, but why? Like, why? I mean, on one hand, we would want to say, well, because all life includes weeping. Because there is, because there is stuff in the world that is just downright sad and heartbreaking. But why, particularly, would the life of Jesus lead us to a life of sadness and weeping? In a couple of places in the Old Testament, God promises that he will remove from his people their heart of stone and he'll give them a heart of flesh. Um, that, that, like, that is a central part of God's transforming work in our lives. Um, that he, he changes our hearts. He, he, he makes them softer, more sensitive. Uh, it, he begins to transform us and to restore our true humanity and, and part of that is just increasing our capacity to feel. And so God's salvation, like one of the ways that God is working transformation in our lives is by making us, um, he's restoring us to the image of true humanity, to the image of Jesus Christ himself. And so he takes hard hearts and he makes them soft. Hearts of stone and he turns them to hearts of flesh, which if you think about it is a really wonderful thing. Like heart of stone is no good. A heart of flesh is a good thing, so it's good, it's good to have your heart transformed, but 
you can imagine that's also really painful. You know, hearts of stone, I guess the one thing they have going for them is that they can't feel pain. They can't feel anything. Hearts of stone don't cry out for restoration. They don't weep. But hearts of flesh, I mean, they can be hurt, they can be broken, they can be wounded. Um, and in fact, they will be hurt and they must be hurt as long as there is still sin and evil and suffering in the world. As long as this world is not the way it's supposed to be, God's people are supposed to be people who weep, who lament, who cry out. You think about Jesus. He wept, right? He's a man of sorrows. He's a crier. Why? Because he was the true human being. He was, he was uh, like perfectly in tune with the heart of God. He wept so much, family, because he loved so much. He wept because he knew better than anyone what the world is supposed to be and what we are supposed to be. And he knew better than anyone like how, how great the gap is between the way things are supposed to be and the way things ought to be. Like, you're supposed to just graduate from high school and then go on and do great things. And so one of the things this psalm invites us to think of about, I think, is that like, the more we grow into the likeness of Jesus, the more we will grow in our capacity for sorrow. It's like Christ's likeness and crying go together. And, and they, they grow together. Like, the, more, the more like Jesus we become, the more we will be people who weep. And Bob Andrews is still here. He said he was leaving early, but he's still here. Um, I don't mean he's still with us. I mean he's... <laughs> I mean, he's still with us in this room. Um, Bob celebrated his 80th birthday this week. And, um, um, and I shed a few tears to the people that are there. You, you did shed a few tears, and I shed a few tears. And Bob, um, I think I could say, well, maybe Libby. Libby's probably taught me how to cry more than anyone in this room. But, uh, <laughs> but Bob, um, a close second to Libby, has taught me how to uh, cry. Um, so many times I remember just sitting with Bob and Bob praying and interceding and crying out to God and weeping. And Bob has a soft heart. And, uh, and you all have experienced that in different ways. But, but we need people like that in our lives. You know, it's a weird culture that we live in where, where people say, like, uh, men can't be motherly. Men have to be, like, strong, stoic, and, and um, impenetrable, invulnerable. And I might have believed that when I came here to some extent as a 28-year-old. And then... I got to know Bob Andrews, <laughs> and, I, and I prayed with Bob Andrews, and um, I saw that like crying and Christ-likeness go together. Um, and so I wonder, family, like, what do you weep over? I 
think we're invited as people who, who know and love Jesus to weep whenever we, whenever we see the gap, right? Um, God's intention for the world is that it be a place of shalom, a place of flourishing where, where we are thriving in our relationship with God and with each other and with the world. And, and we know that this has been fragmented and shattered and that the world so often feels like it's coming apart at the seams and, and so we experience like all of the wrong, all the evil and sin, like injustice and violence and loneliness and sickness and like families that fall apart and the list could go on and on and a heart of stone just navigates that so easily. You just walk through it unfazed, but a heart of flesh um, sees it and stops and sit with, sits with it and weeps. Um, and so, so there's an invitation to be, um, to practice lament and sorrow whenever we, whenever we see the gap between the way things are and the way things are supposed to be. Um, hmm. I think some of the t- some of some of what we're invited to weep over is the gap that we notice in ourselves. We'll weep over our own sin. <laughs> the more we grow in Christ likeness, the more we'll cry tears of repentance. Uh, there's also, I think, an invitation for us to weep. Um, when we notice the gap in other people, like sometimes we will see the gap in others, and so we'll weep for people like who don't yet know Jesus, people we know and love, but who don't yet know and love Jesus. I'm not talking about tears of pity. I'm, I'm not talking about feeling sorry for others in some kind of smug and condescending way, like, oh, we have the truth, and sorry that you don't. But I just mean like tears that spring from a love for people and a longing for people to know this one who is um, so good and so true and who already loves them with a perfect love, just for them to, to awaken to that reality. I think these are the tears the Apostle Paul talks about when he writes to the Philippians. He says, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He also says in that letter that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But now, like people in our city and people in our neighborhoods and, and for, for a lot of us, it's like people in our own families, um, they are walking as enemies of the cross. They want nothing to do with Jesus. And um, hearts of flesh bear the sadness of that. But the point isn't just to go around being sad. There's also an invitation in light of that to, to like sow our tears in some way. And I, and I think about the tears that we might cry of repentance. Like... The point is never to sit around feeling sorry for our sin, but then with no intention to actually turn from our sin. 
Like that would be really, this would be insincere tears. The point is to sow the tears, like actually um, let your heart break with the gap in yourself and then turn from sin and turn to face Jesus and, and follow him afresh. And the point isn't to just sit around being sad for people who don't know Jesus. The point is to like sow the tears, like move out in, in love toward them. Um, be willing to lay down your life for them in acts of service and care and kindness so that in you they actually see the radiance of the light of Christ so that you help them to see that Jesus is good, that Jesus is full of concern and love for them. So verses 5 and 6 of our psalm says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And I, I hear resonances there of Jesus' parables about sowing the gospel word, and with his teaching that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So I think... Feel the sorrow and sadness of people living as enemies of the cross, but then move out. Move out toward them. These tears can be sown. Family, I'm, I wonder, like, what do you weep for? Who do you weep for? How will you sow those tears? And I also wonder, like, what if your heart has grown hard? And, and what if the only tears that you cry these days are tears of self-pity? Like, what if, what if we find ourselves becoming people who have forgotten how to cry tears of lament and tears of repentance and tears of love for others? Well then, we need to be restored and we can cry out with the psalm, Restore us, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Like, if our hearts have become hard like parched dirt, uh, we can cry out for streams of, re of refreshing from God. And, and we need this, family. And I know that I need this because I know that even though God has given me a heart of flesh, it is still so hard, it's so easy for my flesh, my heart of flesh to become calloused. And for, <laughs> I mean, and especially... <laughs> It's just so much, isn't it? It's like, just think like, it's, it's hard to keep a heart sensitive to, um, to things, like we could take any aspect of human suffering, but I've just been thinking a lot about the absurdity of gun violence. And when you read a story like every week, it becomes hard to, to stay soft to that because it's just a lot, it's a lot to bear. And so I know, like, we need to cry out together, like, restore us, O Lord. And God's promise is to answer that prayer for restoration. He promises that, one, that the one who sows in tears will reap with joy. The one who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bearing his sheaves with him. And that word shall, I think, is significant because it just doesn't leave room for doubt. It doesn't leave room... Um, for, for questioning, if the tears are sown, if the tears are sown, there will be a harvest of joy, which means that there's hope for us. 
that there's hope for us in our struggle against sin, and there's hope for those who don't yet know Jesus, and there's hope for this hurting world, and um, and there's there's hope for moms who have lost their children. The one who goes out weeping shall return home in joy. And what does that mean, though? Like, and, and how is that possible? I think the temptation, the temptation for me, is to read this psalm as primarily being about something that I need to do. Um, that if, if we sow in tears, and if we, if we do it right, well, then we will reap with joy. We shall reap with joy. If we go out sowing seed, we shall come home bearing sheaves. And, of course, like on one level, I think the psalm is about us. But what I'm wondering is, how good at sowing do I have to be? How good do you have to be in order to bring this about? You know, I don't know anyone who has gone to his grave without sin in his heart. In other words, tears of repentance, even when they're truly sown, don't seem to rid us of sin. And I know people who have gone to their graves as enemies of the cross, like they died not knowing Jesus, not loving Jesus, not wanting to know or love Jesus. And this despite the fact that like so many tears were sown for them. And then there are all the other gaps we can see out there in the world between the way things are supposed to be and the way things are. And as far as I can tell, like the gaps aren't getting smaller. And if this psalm is only about us, or, or primarily about us, well then what? Like, are we just not doing it right? Maybe we just aren't weeping enough, or weeping in the right ways. Um, and it's weird to even talk like that, because I don't know about you, but for me, at least, I, I was thinking, like, maybe, maybe the practice for this week is just to invite people to the practice of crying. <laughs> I think you can practice lament, but I don't know that you can practice crying. I mean, for me at least, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing I can practice. It either happens or it doesn't, and I'm either moved to tears or I'm not, and sometimes like, I cry when I don't want to cry, like, like this morning. I, 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 a lot of you have seen me cry up here a lot. And I never really want that to happen. So it's, it's always like a little embarrassing. And then there are other times when I think tears would be the most appropriate thing in the world right now, and I can't force myself to make the waterworks begin. I'm just like, I'm like a dry, dry well. And so tears just seem out of my control. Uh, and, and so one option maybe is that we need to Try to practice crying. I don't know what that looks like. Or learn how to sow our tears more effectively so that we can bring home sheaves of joy. Or maybe, family, we need Jesus. You remember what Bonhoeffer says. He says, if we want to read and to pray the Psalms, we must not ask first what they have to do with us, but what they have to do with Jesus Christ. Jesus did know what it means to sow with tears. 
You know, we see him crying at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, and we see him like weeping over a city that he loves. And at the end of his life, we see him crying out to God, and he's crying like tears of God forsakenness. It's like there at the end on the cross, we see Jesus himself somehow dealing with this gap and dealing with the sorrow and taking it into himself and onto himself and bearing it and bearing it away. Um, Jesus is the man of sorrows. Like maybe he is the man of all the sorrows. Like he, he sees your tears and he takes them up in his bottle and he makes them his own. And so the promise of the gospel, remember family, isn't that if we master the right weeping techniques and sowing strategies, there will be a harvest. The promise is that God is close to the brokenhearted. Like really close. And that God saves the crushing spirit. And he has committed himself to one day somehow making his blessing flow far as the curse is found. There's that place in The Lord of the Rings where Sam Ganji, he, he asks Gandalf, this is near the end, and he asks Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? Which is just a, it's a, it's a great question. <laughs> is everything sad going to come untrue? Tolkien. Man, to think of that question, that's what we want. And the answer is yes. I mean, the answer is yes. If the gospel's true, the answer is yes. So here's hoping that the gospel is true. If the gospel's true, the answer is yes. Like, everything sad is going to come untrue, but it's not going to be your doing. And it's not going to be my doing. Uh, C.S. Lewis imagines that the future bliss, once attained, like it's somehow going to work backwards in time, turning even our worst agonies into glory. Maybe so, but again, it's not, not going to be your doing or my doing. Like one way or another, this is the work of Jesus Christ. That he will come and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be pain nor crying. Um, uh, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheep with him. And, and so this one, that one, Jesus, he invites you and me today to just trust him with our sorrows and to sit with him. And, and, maybe, and maybe he'll teach us how to weep. I want to close with a prayer that was written a long time ago by a guy named Anselm, who was a theologian and, and a pastor. And he wrote a lot of good things. Uh, 
And this is up there. Let's pray. Jesus, like a mother, you gather your people to you. You are gentle with us as a mother with her children. Often you weep over our sins and our pride. Tenderly you draw us from hatred and judgment. You comfort us in sorrow and bind up our wounds. In sickness you nurse us, and with pure milk you feed us. Jesus, by your dying, we are born to new life. By your anguish and labor, we come forth in joy. Despair turns to hope through your sweet goodness. Through your gentleness, we find comfort in fear. Your warmth gives life to the dead. Your touch makes sinners righteous. Lord Jesus, in your mercy, heal us. In your love and tenderness, remake us. In your compassion, bring grace and forgiveness. For the beauty of heaven, may your love prepare us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.